Good morning to everyone. Turn with me for one last time to the book of Romans chapter 2. You heard me right. Last time we're going to turn to Romans chapter 2. Uh, lots going on in the news right now. Uh, Ebola, undoubtedly we've all heard of that. And uh, trouble, a very sad situation on our southern border. Um, Gaza, ablaze, smart bombs, a little bit of an oxymoron, smart bomb, but there it is nevertheless, smart bombs, again being dropped in Iraq, and uh, the world in turmoil, upheaval in many ways, as it has been ever since the fall, and as it will continue to be until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm not going to talk about any of that. My friend, I'm just going to ask you to come away with me for a short time and stand upon a rock that does not move. Stand upon a very firm foundation. Stand upon one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And hear what our Almighty God has to say to His people. And so follow along as I read in Romans chapter 2. Uh, beginning in verse 17, and I'm going to go to the end of the chapter. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written... The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now to begin with, I'm going to draw your attention to the screen behind me, and Teresa is going to bring up a slide for us. There it is. I think this is a good place to start before we get into the detail of, uh, details of our text uh, today. As we read the Bible, as we read Scripture, I find it helpful, and I want to suggest to you that it is indeed helpful to bear in mind that the Bible always speaks to two groups of people. That much is obvious. Believers over here and unbelievers over here. Christians 
non-Christians. Those who are in Christ and those who are outside of Christ. So we read the Bible, certain parts, certain portions of the Bible, speaking directly to believers, certain parts, certain portions of the Bible, speaking directly to unbelievers. But I want to suggest to you a further division as it relates to assurance, confidence. And so how we perceive our relationship with God. Is it all good? Are we okay? Is God satisfied with us? Does God receive us? Does he welcome us? Does he look favorably upon us? And so when we throw that category into the mix, we actually discover that the Bible speaks to four different groups of people. Okay? And I think this is very helpful. You start over here on the top left, and without looking, me looking, if memory serves me correctly, there we have believers with assurance. And so the Christian who knows he, her, is saved, confident of the relationship with God. So far, so good. You move down to the bottom left, and we still have believers, Christians, but those without assurance. You see, faith and assurance are not the same thing. Assurance does come from faith, but they are not exactly the same thing. And it is possible for a sincere Christian, it is possible for a genuine believer to struggle for a short period of time, perhaps even for a long period of time, with assurance. Not really certain as to their standing before a holy God. So that's the second category. Now you move over to the bottom right, bottom right. And there we have unbelievers without assurance. Uh, They don't pretend otherwise. These are non-Christians, those outside of Christ, who never claim the name of Christ. They know they're not saved. They don't make any claim to be saved, and they actually don't really care. They're not all, all that worried about it. Unbelievers without any assurance. And then you move up to the fourth, the final category, top right. Unbelievers, a strange category, really. Unbelievers with assurance. And so those who aren't really Christians, but they think they are, saved. Those who aren't genuine believers, but uh, they think all is well with the soul. Those who are not really in Christ, but they think God loves them, they think God accepts them, they think everything is okay between them and God. Unbelievers with assurance. It's helpful. When we read the Bible and we're we're reading any particular passage of Scripture, we stop, pause, just ask ourselves, uh, to whom does this text speak? And so you think strictly in terms of the book of Romans, which we're studying. The book of Romans. Okay, there are times when Paul is addressing believers with assurance. As a matter of fact, for the most part, he's addressing believers with assurance in this epistle. Most of what he has to say in here is aimed at them. It is exclusively for them. But at times in this epistle, a couple of occasions, Paul seems to have that second category in view. Believers without assurance. And so you turn, for example, to Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Paul reminds us that those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And there Paul waxes eloquent concerning that golden chain of salvation. And right through to the end of chapter 8, he affirms, he reassures his audience that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so there he seems to have people in view who are struggling, Christians who are struggling with assurance. Now move back over here to the right side. Unbelievers, without any assurance. 
At times, Paul addresses this category of people in this epistle. And you think of much of what we read in chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, right through to verse 32. And there Paul has this group in view. He has in view those who reject God. He has in view those who suppress the knowledge of God. He has in view those who live an openly immoral, idolatrous lifestyle. And he has something to say to them there in that text. And now you think of this final category right there in the top right. Unbelievers with assurance. This group is Paul's principal audience in chapter 2. He is writing to people. He is writing to individuals, men, women, who assume all is well with the soul. They're actually unbelievers, but they have assurance. They actually claim to rely upon God, but in actual fact, they do not know God. And so in the verses I read, beginning in verse 17, right through to verse 29, Paul is thinking primarily of the Jews, collectively, as a group. And here he says, not every individual, he himself was a Jew, but he was a believer in the Lord Jesus. But but generally speaking, as a whole, the Jews fell into that category. You can take that slide away now, Teresa, we're done with it. They fell into that category, that fourth grouping, unbelievers with assurance. Uh, They claim to believe in God. They claim to be faithful to God. They claim to be devoted to God. But in actual fact, they were separated from God. And in these verses, what Paul is trying to do, oh, he's belaboring it. He's just taking this sledgehammer, if you like, and just trying to break the rock, the hardness of their heart, just swinging away. He is trying to undermine their false assurance. False assurance. His approach is a little bit like the game Kerplunk. I won't take a survey, but that's an old one. Christian remembers it. Some of the younger ones, probably not. It's probably gone the way of Connect Four and all those other gems from years ago. Kerplunk. Very simple game. Not, you don't have to be a brain surgeon to play this one. It consisted of a tube, plastic tube, maybe that tall, that round. And in the middle of this tube, right around the midsection, there were a bunch of holes. And the top was open, the bottom was open, And what you did was you took a bunch of sticks, sort of like pickup sticks, and you placed them through one hole and through another hole on the other side and left it there and kept putting in all these sticks through all these holes until you formed a lattice, something like a lattice. And then you would dump a couple dozen marbles in the opening of the top, and the lattice, and it's an exciting game, would catch these marbles. Then the fun begins. Four players, five players, two players, play by yourself. If that suits you, that's fine. What you would then do is you would take out one of the sticks. And then the player next to you would take out another stick. The player next to you would take out another stick. And as those sticks were slowly removed, the marbles would begin to shift. Maybe one would sneak its way through and fall, kerplunk. Apparently that's the noise it makes, hence the, name, the game's name. It makes no sense to me, but kerplunk, there you have it inevitably, invariably, in every instance playing that game, there was always one stick 
One stick that once it was removed, halfway through, everything began to shift. The marbles began to fall. The stick was fully withdrawn, and it all came crashing down. That is what Paul is doing in these verses. It is a theological game of kerplunk. And he is removing stick after stick after stick after stick in anticipation, in expectation of what? that the whole superstructure will come crashing down and he will undermine their presumption. He will undermine their false sense of assurance. And so he does that beginning in verse 17. We looked at these verses last Sunday all the way through to verse 24. And here Paul goes after one thing in particular. He goes after their religious obedience. And he basically demonstrates, this is just a quick review, he basically demonstrates that, look, over here we have reality. What really is? Over here. Over here we have the Jews' perception of reality. They're not even in the same universe. Over here the Jews, as they perceive themselves in relation to God, they boast in the Lord. They think all is well when it comes to their relationship to God. They think they are the faithful remnant. They think they alone understand. They think they alone are faithful to that revelation which was given to them. And when it comes to their relationship with the Gentiles, oh, they look down their noses upon these Gentiles, the ignorant masses, and have this feeling of superiority. That is their perception of reality. And Paul undermines their perception of reality. And he basically tells them that these things are poles apart. Here's how you perceive God. You think you are faithful to him, devoted to him. But in actual fact, verse 24, you dishonor God. You think you are superior to the Gentiles. You think you are a beacon of truth, a pillar of orthodoxy, this lighthouse in the midst of darkness. But in actual fact, here's reality. The Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. He's removed a stick. And the marbles are beginning to come crashing down as he goes after their religious obedience. And now in our text, verse 25 through to the end of the chapter, he goes after their religious observance. Religious observance. And he is... Oh, he's like a hound on a deer's trail. He is focused in here. He he, he has nothing else in view. He, He has his goal. He has his objective as he seeks to remove another stick so that these marbles come crashing down, their religious observance. And one thing, just one thing in particular, circumcision, circumcision. Now I need to say something here. Here it is. That's bizarre. These verses, I mean, come on. Here we are, 21st century, so far removed circumcision. What a bizarre subject. What has that got to do with biblical history? What has that got to do with Scripture? What has that got to do with me living here, Glen Rose, Texas? Give me five minutes, maybe ten, to explain it. But it is, it is significant, and it is extremely important. What's it all about, circumcision? We step back in time, all the way back to the book of Genesis, And we go all the way back to chapter 17 of the book of Genesis, where God institutes this rite, this ritual of circumcision. Why? What's its point? What purpose does it serve? 
we can sum it up quickly in three words. The first is this. Circumcision is a sign of God's covenant. And so you might remember, if you were here last Sunday, I mentioned the fact that Genesis 11 is a very important chapter when it comes to understanding biblical history. Because in Genesis chapter 11, we have mankind united against God in opposition to him. What does God do? He confuses man's languages, and then he spreads man over the face of the earth. So there we have the rise, if you like, of the nations. Very next chapter, God has his promise in view that he's going to send a redeemer, he's going to send a savior. So the very next chapter, he calls someone, Abram, whose name he changes to Abraham. And he promises Abraham that in his seed, in him, all the families, all the nations, all the tribes of the earth shall be blessed. He gives circumcision in chapter 17 as a sign of this covenant. We can relate to that, sort of. Most of us adults are wearing one of these, right? A ring. What is it? It is a sign of a covenant. We stood before a minister in a church, before God, before witnesses, and we entered into a solemn yet joyous covenant. We made promises. We exchanged vows. And the ring served as a reminder of the eternal, unbreakable nature of that covenant. And so God institutes circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Second reason why he institutes circumcision is this. It is a seal of Abraham's righteousness. Not made all that clear back in Genesis, but certainly made clear where we're going in the book of Romans chapter 4. Because Paul will address that incident specifically when we get there. That is the fourth chapter. You see, we read of Abraham's circumcision in Genesis 17. But where do we read of Abraham's justification? It's actually chapter 15. And so God gave Abraham a promise. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham believed God, and God imputed or reckoned it to him as righteousness. He was circumcised after he was justified. And so his circumcision was actually a visible reminder that pointed him back to his justification. Now, a third reason why God instituted circumcision is as follows. It is not only a sign of his covenant, not only a seal of Abraham's righteousness, but it is a symbol, symbol of spiritual renewal. We have a problem. We have a huge problem. We are not as God made us. He made us in his image. By virtue of the fall in the Garden of Eden, that image was marred. Human nature, body and soul became what? Corrupt. The Bible refers to that as the flesh. Very confusing. Very confusing as we read Paul's epistle because he uses that word flesh in at least three ways. But most of the time when he uses the term flesh, he's referring to corrupt human nature, fallen human nature, body and soul. That fallen human nature is passed from generation to generation by virtue of procreation, propagation, correct? And so circumcision is a very suitable picture of what? The removal of flesh pointing to the need for the removal of the flesh, that corrupt nature, That what was actually the result or spread from generation to generation, if you like, through procreation, this fallen human nature must be dealt with. 
There must be this physical surgery points to the need for a spiritual, radical surgery. Where? In the realm of the heart. And we read it earlier. That's why God declared back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart. The Jews, for the most part, never got that. They never understood it. They never grasped the symbolic significance of circumcision. Rather, they rested in circumcision in and of itself. They rested in the external act, ritual, rite, ceremony of circumcision and ignored, turned a blind eye to what was of utmost importance the internal reality. It is not the sign. It is the reality that matters. It is not the physical surgery. It is the spiritual surgery that is of utmost importance. I think that's Paul's point, beginning in verse 25. For circumcision indeed, I think he's speaking somewhat hypothetically here, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. So he's speaking to Jews. They're circumcised physically. It's of value if you obey the law. None of you do obey the law. I've just established that. But if you break the law, which is what you do, your circumcision becomes what? Uncircumcision. In other words, who cares? It serves no purpose. The external sign has now become irrelevant because there is no internal reality. And he makes the same point, and and he presses it home, verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised, who's this? It's a Gentile uncircumcised, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision now be regarded as circumcision? He is turning their world upside down. He is yanking out every last one of those sticks out of that game kerplunk. He is undermining their entire worldview and how they perceive themselves in their relationship to God based on religious observance, some external tradition, rite, ceremony. And he presses his point home. He's relentless, beginning in verse 27. And he makes three distinctions. He mentions three distinguishing marks between physical circumcision and spiritual circumcision. The first is this. They differ In their object. Verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you. Who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical. There's the object. The contrast. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart. And so here's a fundamental difference. Their object. You have physical circumcision over here. The object is what? It is physical. It is outward. You have, in marked contrast, spiritual circumcision over here. Its object is internal, inward. It is the heart. They differ secondly in their means. Pick it up at the start of verse 29. But a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Here are the means. 
by, here's instrumentality, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so physical circumcision over here, the object is external, it is physical, it is the body. Spiritual circumcision over here, the object is internal, it is the heart. Physical circumcision over here, the means is external, it is of the letter. In other words, it's something man does. Spiritual circumcision over here, it's internal, it belongs to the realm of the heart, it's something the Spirit of God does. And now he mentions, emphasizes a third distinction, that is... Their result. They differ in terms of their result. Very last phrase, verse 29. His praise. His praise. So the individual who is circumcised by the Spirit in the heart, his praise is not from man, but from God. Do you get his point? Here you have it, this contrast. Physical circumcision, spiritual circumcision. They differ in their object, outward, inward. That is the body, physical, the heart, spiritual. They differ in their means. Over here, physical circumcision is something man does by the letter. Over here, spiritual circumcision is something the spirit does upon the heart. And what is the result? Praise. Physical circumcision, what does it lead to? Praise from man. They pat themselves on their back. They think simply because they bear this mark in their body, simply because they participate in this external ritual ceremony, all is well with God. They are so far gone, it's unbelievable. No, no, no. It is the man, it is the individual, it is the woman who has experienced circumcision in the heart by the Spirit. Their praise comes from God, meaning what? God actually receives them as what? Covenant members. God receives them and welcomes them as what? The true descendants of Abraham. God welcomes them and receives them as what? Not my terminology. Paul has used it a couple times in these verses. He receives them as what? True Jews. To be a true Jew is not to be circumcised externally. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It is all about what is going on in the internal realms of the heart. To be born of the Spirit of God. To be made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. To know something, to have experienced that internal, radical, spiritual surgery. It is to be an heir of the Abrahamic covenant. It is to be an heir of the promises. It is to be one with Christ who was the object of that promise. In your seed, it is Christ. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Can you say kerplunk with me? No wonder they hated Paul. eh? No wonder they wanted a pound of his flesh. No wonder they wanted him in prison. They wanted him dead. No wonder they despised him. He completely, radically turned their entire worldview on its head and tore, pulled the carpet out from under their feet and show them that they rely on their religious obedience. Oh, your, perce- your, your self-perception so far gone. They rely on their religious observance, the mere external, all the while neglecting the internal reality of the heart. Now what, I pray, does that have to do with us? 
in the 21st century, Glen Rose, Texas. Here it is in a statement. The Jews of Christ's day, the Jews of Paul's day, those categorized in these verses, stand, if you like, stand as an ongoing perpetual warning of the danger of relying upon religious observance. They stand as a perpetual warning. The alarms are going off. You're lying in bed at night, 1 o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, the wind is howling. The rain, you can hear it crashing against the window, and the siren goes off. What do you do? You roll over and go back to sleep. No, you don't. You seek cover, you seek shelter because you know it's coming. And so Paul is using here these Jews as as a warning. They serve as a warning sign, an alarm bell for us for generations that we dare not rely on the mere externals. We dare not rely, build our house upon religious observance. Now to drive this home and really emphasize this, I want to ask three questions. Three questions I've been pondering the past couple of weeks, and I'm going to be pretty detailed in my answers to these questions as we, as we seek to drive home this central message in this text. The first question is this that we need to wrestle with. Why do we do this? Why do we rely on religious observance? Why are we so inclined to do that? I'll put it another way. Why are we susceptible to this tendency? host of reasons. I'm going to give you four. Here's number one. We want identifiable markers with which to reassure ourselves of our standing before God. We want to be able to point to something tangible and say, there, that made my peace with God. That's the reason God's okay with me. I'm baptized. I'm part of that church. I attend worship weekly, I give money regularly, I read the Bible diligently, I recite the creed perfectly, and I visit the sick faithfully. We so desperately want identifiable markers to reassure us of our standing before God. Second reason is this. We want things that set us apart from others. I'm a member of a church. My church is not like other churches. I'm glad my church does things this way and not that way. Look at our practices. Look at our programs. Look at our activities. Look at our numbers. My church has it together. I am so different from the unwashed masses. Third reason. We want to control God. Tim Keller writes, The default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God through our performance. We so desperately want God to be our debtor. We so desperately want him to be obligated to us. We so desperately want a list of things that if we do them, external actions, it will mean that God will act on our behalf. If I pray enough, fast enough, give enough, God will act. If I devote myself enough or deprive myself enough, God will act. Default position of the human heart to control God through our performance. It was kind of sad. I was reminded of this very thing this past week. I was listening to Christian radio. I don't often listen to Christian radio, but I, was, I broke down and I was listening to Christian radio. And it was sad. And, and I felt for this girl. She phoned in. It was a phone-in hour or something, and she was asking for prayer. 
because her grandfather was, was deathly sick and uh, you know, in tears, asking people to pray, encouraging people to pray. And if she just left it at that, fine, beautiful, I hear you. But then she, she began to go on and wax eloquent. Uh, you know, if, if we can just get enough prayers, and if I can just get enough people praying, and if I can just get these prayers focused enough, and if we can just get these prayers focused on my, on my grandfather, I know God will respond. I know it will force him to act. Oh, my brothers and sisters, that is not biblical Christianity. That is pagan superstition using Christian jargon. We so desperately want to control God. We so desperately want to manipulate God. And we will use external religion, external observance, our list of things we've decided to do or not to do, and we will reason in the back of our minds, you know you do it, and so do I, that if I just pull this off, God will give me what I want. God will never bring any suffering into my life. God will just see me safely home. God will bless me. All will be well. My standing before God will be okay. We gravitate to these sorts of things because it is the default position of our heart. We want to control God. Fourth reason is this. We want to avoid issues related to the heart. We would rather avoid issues related to the heart. That's one of the reasons, the fourth reason, and perhaps the most common reason why we gravitate to religious observance. We want to avoid issues related to the heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. I'd rather not go there because I know what my heart is like. Can you imagine if I went to Allison and said, you know, I love you with 47% of my heart. You've never seen Allison like that, but I'll tell you, 40% of of my heart, there'd be issues. What if I went to her and said, I love you with 73% of my heart? I don't think she'd be very happy with that either. What if I went to her and said, Allison, I love you with 94% of my heart? That's an A. I don't think she'd be too chuffed with that either. And yet God commands us to love him with our whole heart. We'd rather not go there. We'd rather live tiptoe around in the world of externals. Why? Because externals draw attention away from what really enslaves us. Pride, envy, gossip, greed, covetousness, gluttony, laziness. We would rather not go there. And religion would be so much easier if I just had a list of 12 external things I must do, religious observance, in order to guarantee that my relationship with God is okay. We would rather not dive into the realm of the heart. Question number two is this. What are some examples of how we do this? What are some examples today of how we do exactly what the Jews did back in Christ's day? I think we've got six or seven. Here's the first. There is such a thing as legal Christianity, legal Christianity, resting on our behavior. And so a legal Christian gauges his relationship with God on the basis of how well he adheres to a self-imposed code of conduct. The legal Christian thinks God keeps score. He likes to hear about how bad other people are. He likes to hear the preacher rail against drinking and dancing. He likes to be reassured of the evil that is out there. 
He is very quick to let people know when they have not reached his required standard. He lives his life in the accusative case. He appeases his conscience, reassuring himself that he isn't given to riotous excess. He's polite and pleasant. For legal Christianity, behavior equals righteousness. There's such a thing as polemical Christianity. There's a time for polemics. You know that as well as I do. But there's such a thing as polemical Christianity when people actually rest on controversy. The polemical Christian reads his Bible to win arguments. He can sniff out a heretic a mile away. Every issue for the polemical Christian is a hill worth dying on because this is how he defines godliness. He needs to be reminded of how accurate he is in comparison to others. He's only happy when he's disagreeing with someone over something. For him, separation is a mark of spiritual health. He's always on the offensive. Listening to him is like drinking vinegar. For polemical Christianity, controversy equals righteousness. Such a thing as emotional Christianity. The emotional Christian rests on experience. He believes his inner impulses and intuitions are actually the direct work of the Spirit of God upon his heart. He lives in pursuit of experiences that reassure him of God's closeness, proximity. He needs to hear certain sentiments repeated over and over again. He is not satisfied nor interested in solid food, but is convinced there must be something more. He pursues whatever it takes to elevate him to that place where he can sense God acting immediately upon him. For emotional Christianity, experience equals righteousness. There's such a thing as doctrinal Christianity. Do not misunderstand me. Nothing wrong with doctrine. We need doctrine. We celebrate doctrine. But the doctrinal Christian rests on knowledge. His religion is all head. There is no heart affection. There is no hand service. He is detached because he is unable to interact with those who don't know what he knows. For doctrinal Christianity, knowledge equates righteousness. There's such a thing as causal Christianity. The causal Christian rests on activity. He's unbelievably busy. He's leading studies, visiting people, offering help. He collapses into bed at night. He pickets at abortion clinics and ministers in the inner city. He's involved in local politics. He's championing civil liberty and confronting racial inequality. He's raising his children God's way. Nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. Except this, that for causal Christianity, activity equals righteousness. And there is finally, one more example, such a thing as traditional Christianity. The traditional Christian rests on form. He loves rites and rituals. He needs a set ceremony and liturgy to soothe his soul. He needs constancy and uniformity to ease his conscience. He despises change. The form always takes precedence over the substance. For traditional Christianity, form equals righteousness. Oh, friends, that is but a sampling, but a sampling of how we commit the very error that the Jews committed centuries ago. It is when we take things, externals, that might be, and in most cases of examples I just gave, are good things. Some of them biblical things. But we turn those things into the main thing 
and equate them with righteousness. Equate them with our standing, our relationship with God, all the while neglecting the inner recesses of the heart. The third question is this, where we must conclude. What does heart religion look like? What does this circumcision that has for its object the inner man, the heart, has for its means the Spirit of God, and has for its end the result, the praise of God, what does this kind of circumcision of the heart look like? We could turn to innumerable passages of Scripture. Paul gives us a concise answer. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's a threefold description there of the true circumcision. Number one, they worship by the Spirit of God. Worship by the Spirit of God. In other words, their worship it comes from where? Affections touched, stirred, ordered by the Holy Spirit. Manifesting itself in what? Actions directed by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. They worship by the Spirit. Second mark is this. They glory in whom? In Christ Jesus. They echo, they take as their life goal, their life ambition, the words of John Owen instead said the following. For believers... Oh, Christ is most precious. He is the sun, he is the rock, he is the life, he is the bread of their souls. For believers, everything that is good, everything that is useful, everything that is amiable, everything that is desirable is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the third mark of the circumcision of the heart. They put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, they do not rest on anything outside of themselves. They do not rest on rites. They do not rest on traditions. They do not rest on ceremonies. They do not rest upon religious observance. They are not relying upon their baptism. They are not relying upon the fact that they filled in a little prayer card at one point 20 years ago. They are not relying on the fact that they're in the the pew at church every Sunday. They are not relying on how much they've given to the Lord's work. They are not relying on the fact that they belong to this church or belong to that particular denomination. They are not relying upon the fact that they read their Bible every day. They are not relying on anything external. They do not put any dependence upon the flesh, that is the works of the flesh, which are the works of a corrupt nature. But their dependence is where? They are resting upon whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't alive when this hymn was penned, but if he had been, if this hymn had been penned centuries, centuries, centuries before when it was, I think it would have been one of the Apostle Paul's favorites. As a matter of fact, he could have included it in this chapter. He could have written it as a title over our verses, our text this morning. Here it is. My hope, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before 
the throne. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. He could have written that stands over this entire chapter. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground, religious obedience, religious observance, all these externals, all of it is sinking sand. Our Father, we pray that you might speak to us this day through your word, what we have heard, what we have read, what we are meditating upon. We pray that by your spirit you might take it and apply it to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered here this day. We do praise the name of Jesus. We thank you for him. We thank you for his incarnation, that he is fully God and fully man, and therefore a suitable, perfect mediator between you and us. We praise you for his finished work upon Calvary's cross. We praise you, too, for his eternal intercession on our behalf. And we praise you for his present reign at your right hand. And so we do, with one voice and one heart, exalt the name of Christ this day and pray that we might be fully pleased with him, our hearts enraptured with him, his person and his work. And we pray again that you might impress your word, all that we have heard upon us, for Christ's glory, for the furtherance of his kingdom. In his name we ask it. Amen.